Hey everyone and welcome back to Thus Spoke Zarathustra, A Reader's Guide. In the last episode on the Preachers of Death, Zarathustra talks about the type of people who suffer and only suffer. The type of people who only see the negative view of reality. And they can't marshal up the forces needed to deal with the negative aspect of reality and the suffering of reality and get beyond it to a view of reality that incorporates the suffering, incorporates the negativity, but conquers it. Instead, they take their resentment out on life. And whether they're the inactive, enervated, consumptives of the soul, or the people who throw away their lives into busyness and industriousness, and whatever is new and fascinating and interesting, both of these types of people have a fundamentally negative view of reality and a very diminished view of what the potential destiny of their soul and their being might be. In today's section on war and warrior peoples, we talk about some of the martial characteristics that we've previously discussed that Zarathustra and Nietzsche encourage us to have towards our day-to-day -day tasks and to our enemies. So let's get into it. Chapter 10 on war and warrior peoples. By our best enemies we do not want to be spared, nor by those whom we love from the ground up. So let me now tell you the truth. My brothers in warfare, I love you from the ground up. I am and have been of your kind, and I am also your best enemy. So let me now tell you the truth. I know about the hatred and envy in your hearts. You are not great enough not to know hatred and envy. So be great enough then not to be ashamed of them. And if you cannot be saints of understanding, then at least be for me its warriors. For they are the companions and precursors of such sainthood. I see many soldiers. I should like to see many warriors. Uniform, one calls what they wear. May what they hide with it not be uniform, too. You shall be such for me that your eye is always seeking an enemy, your enemy. And with some of you there is hate at first sight. You shall seek your enemy, you shall wage your war, and for your own thoughts. And should your thought be defeated, your honesty shall still proclaim its triumph in that. You shall love peace as a means to new wars, and the short peace more than the long. For you I do not counsel work, but rather battle. For you I do not counsel peace, but rather victory. May your work be a battle, may your peace be a victory. One can be silent and sit still only when one has arrow and bow, else one chatters and quarrels. May your peace be a victory. You say it is the good cause that hallows even war? I say to you, it is the good war that hallows every cause. War and courage have accomplished more great things than love of one's neighbor. Not your pitying, but your bravery has so far saved the unfortunate. What is good, you ask? To be brave is good. 
let the little maiden say, to be good is to be pretty as well as touching. They call you heartless, but your hearts are true, and I love the modesty of your hardiness. You are modest about your flood, and others are modest about their ebb. You are ugly? Well then, my brothers, put the sublime around you, the mantle of the ugly. And when your souls become great, they become exuberant, and in your sublimity there is wickedness. I know you well. In wickedness is the meeting of the exuberant man with the weakling, but they misunderstand each other. I know you well. You may only have enemies that are to be hated, but not enemies to be despised. You must be proud of your enemy. Then the successes of your enemy are also your successes. Rebellion, that is nobility in the slave. May your nobility be obedience. May your very commanding be in obeying. To a good warrior, thou shalt, sounds more pleasing than I will. And all that is dear to you, you should first let yourselves be commanded to do. May your love of life be love of your highest hope. And may your highest hope be the highest thought of life. But your highest thought you shall receive as a command from me, and it is this. The human is something that is to be overcome. So live your lives of obedience and of war. What use is living long? What warrior wants to be spared? I do not spare you. I love you from the ground up, my brothers in war. Thus spoke Zarathustra. So I like this section. I think we've already covered a lot of the topics that are discussed in it, but it gets the energy up. After reading the slow and depressing and low energy section before this on the preachers of death, which often describes the mindset of a defeated person, this section on war and warrior peoples energizes our slackened senses and tries to fill us with a bit more energy and compel us to conquer the challenges that face us. To begin with, you can see many parallels between this section and what was discussed in the very first section of the first book, where the spirit becomes a lion, and the lion has to take on the dragon, whose name is Thou Shalt. The purpose of the lion, if you remember from that section, is to create a new freedom for itself, to create freedom for itself for the spirit to develop into the child. And I discussed in that section that basically, in order to develop a mindset that is able to creatively extend itself into the future and develop itself, it needs to take on a long process of training and development as represented by the spirit of the camel, taking things upon itself weighing itself down as it trods into the desert and is then replaced by the spirit of the lion. And the spirit of the lion is essentially the powerful yes-saying element in our spirit that has to take on the thou shalt, which is the great dragon. Nietzsche here, in the beginning of this section, when he says that if we cannot be the saints of understanding, then at least be for me its warriors, 
and when he directs people to obey him in taking their highest hope and their highest thought from him, that the human is something that is to be overcome. He's basically saying that for those of us who are on the journey, who've recognized that maybe we have a defeatist attitude towards life, that maybe we can't take the struggle and that we doubt ourselves, like the youth on the mountainside, that we need to take Nietzsche's philosophy and view that everything is the will to power trying to push beyond itself and hopefully in an upward direction. Nietzsche is inserting himself here in the form of Zarathustra to say, you're not yet at the stage of being a creative, superhuman type character, and that in order to get there, you need to take on the thou shalts that Zarathustra provides. And in line with doing so, we can align ourselves with the flow of reality, with the flow of the will to power, and struggle and fight in a positive direction. And while we may not be able to figure that direction out for ourselves as of yet, because we're just at the beginning of this process of self-becoming, Nietzsche and Zarathustra are here to provide us some direction. I like at the beginning of the section where Nietzsche says, My brothers in warfare, I love you from the ground up. I am and have been of your kind, and I am also your best enemy, so let me now tell you the truth. He's saying that by our best enemies we do not want to be spared, nor by those whom we love from the ground up. And he's saying that both people that are our enemies, things that are our enemies, the struggles that we face, the people who get in our way in our development, the issues that get in our way in our development, the psychological obstacles that get in our way in our development. These enemies, as well as people that we love from the ground up, our best friends, the people who call us to do great things and inspire us to be better than we are, both realms provide motivation to improve ourselves, our enemies by getting in our way and making us feel ashamed or weak, by defeating us, and our friends who inspire us. Both of these things can motivate us, and we should use that as motivation rather than seeing the challenges or the higher places that our friends have attained as signals that we're miserable, that we can't achieve anything, and we should just become depressed, like the preachers of death. And so Nietzsche here is telling us, the reader, that he loves us from the ground up, that he understands that the people who are reading him and taking him seriously are of his kind. And he loves us from the ground up, but he's also our best enemy. He's challenging us to overcome ourselves. He's challenging us to remove all the degenerate behaviors and thought patterns in our heads that signify who we currently are in the view of who we might become if we study under him. And he says, I know about the hatred and envy in your hearts. You are not great enough not to know hatred and envy. So be great enough then not to be ashamed of them. There's, in modern society, an unfortunate disposition of most people against the emotions of hatred and envy. 
There are things called hate speech. There are things called hate facts, apparently, so I've just learned. And whenever someone gets upset or shows that they hate something, polite society looks down its nose on that emotion. They, oh, it's a low emotion. Don't give in to your base instincts. We're better than that. However, anyone who thinks for two seconds about evolutionary biology would know that hatred is a very powerful and important emotion, and sometimes it is justified. If someone is doing something actively against you, actively against your family, trying to take advantage of you, committing a crime against you, that is an appropriate time to feel hatred and to use that energy, that primal energy, to help you overcome the situation. It's the same thing with envy. If you're looking at your friends who have done well, you should let that inspire you. You should use that energy of wanting what they have not to try and take them down, not to become resentful towards life, but to kick yourself into motion and take positive action in your life. The point that he makes where he says you are not great enough not to know hatred and envy does suggest a point that Zarathustra and Nietzsche perhaps have attained where they don't know hatred or envy. It's almost within the nature of the spirit of the child, someone who is an excellent example of a type of human being who has risen above and beyond the other people in that category of human beings, who has propelled themselves forward more than most other people to not know hatred and envy. They've grown past it. Things that they hate, they begin to see the wisdom in. They harness that energy. They no longer envy anyone else because they're so involved on in becoming who they are that they don't care about other people. And they let other people who've attained great things inspire them rather than give them negative thoughts. When Nietzsche says that if you cannot be saints of understanding, then at least be for me its warriors, for they are the companions and precursors of such sainthood. This seems to me to be a comment directed towards people who are more philosophically inclined. Although I think it also applies to people who are generally on the path of becoming a certain type of human being, but who aren't the advanced type of that human being. He's basically saying, if you can't be the best at what you're doing, then at least fight for it. For they are the companions and precursors of such sainthood. They go with it. They create the space for such people to continue developing. They create advancements in the areas that people might care about, that then creates space for that niche to exist in humanity, and then also might lead you to becoming that yourself. So say you're inclined towards being an artist. You like playing music. If you cannot be a saint of music, then at least be for me its warrior. Push yourself in that area. Be disciplined in that area. And even if you won't necessarily be the best person in that area, you're spreading in the world the field of the music that you're involved in playing. You're creating a niche which exists in which you might develop to be the master of, but if not, you're creating a niche in an environment where it's easier for other people to break into. So if you think of any field of music, often the first people involved in that area aren't necessarily the best. This can be seen in 
basically any area where an artist is inspired by another artist. So oftentimes great artists who sell millions of records, who really become the true craftsmen in that area and really personify a genre of music, they aren't necessarily the first ones exploring that area. Someone has to do it first. And while they may not become the best, they've created a niche and they've inspired other people to take up the flag of that particular genre and move it forward. When he says, I see many soldiers, I should like to see many warriors. Uniform, one calls what they wear. May what they hide with it not be uniform too. This is basically a call from Zarathustra for all of us to be unique, to fight for what we believe in, to not be uniform, to not be the same as everyone else, but to give our own unique flavor to what we do and fight for that. And you shall be such for me that your eye is always seeking an enemy, your enemy. He's saying basically on this path of becoming, you should always be looking for the thing that's getting in your way, whether it's a person or an institution or something in your own head. You should always, with that warrior heroic mindset, be looking for a dragon to slay so that you can take on the challenge and take on the benefits that come from defeating that challenge. You shall seek your enemy, you shall wage your war, and for your own thoughts. And should your thought be defeated, your honesty shall still proclaim its triumph in that. So if you're a philosopher, and you have a particular set of ideas, and something gets proven wrong, you should celebrate that. You should celebrate whenever you're proven wrong. Because that's a means to enhancing yourself. You become stronger when things that about you that are wrong or weak are eliminated. If you're a musician and you're not doing a very good job at coming up with something melodic and someone points it out, you shouldn't hate them for it. You shouldn't despise them. You should take the fact that you're wrong, be honest about it, and proclaim your triumph in overcoming your own weakness. And you shall love peace as a means to new wars and the short peace more than the long. People in the previous section, the preachers of death, they want life to not present them any difficulties. It already causes them to suffer too much and they just want a quiet, lowly existence where nothing makes them suffer too much. Zarathustra here is directly contradicting that and saying, no, once you have an orientation in life, whether it's your own or something given to you by Zarathustra or Nietzsche, you should be looking for battles. You should be looking for suffering. You should be looking for the challenges that help you become a stronger person. And you should not want a long peace. You should not want long periods of inactivity. They're enervating. You're not developing. You're stagnating. You should look for battles. Overcome them. Use your peace as a means to new wars. Recover. Develop yourself. Develop yourself around the learnings that you just uncovered in yourself. And then use that to find out what the next battle is. Find out the next area that you need to develop yourself in and go for it. And again, in contradistinction to the previous section, he says one can be silent and sit still only when one has arrow and bow, else one chatters and quarrels. That basically, you can only afford to sit around in peace and harmony with the things around you when you have arrow and bow when you are a strong person with the tools to take on reality. 
Otherwise, you're like the person enjoying the peace who can't deal with reality. You're like a preacher of death. You're a depressed person who doesn't want to take on challenges and just chatters and quarrels. And you're a ball of negativity that's just hoping not to be antagonized against by reality. And if you picture just the two different types of people here and what they might do with downtime, you can sort of see what I'm saying. If you're someone who's stagnant, who's not working on themselves, who sees themselves as a victim, you're going to try and avoid all the challenges in life that you can. And even in that peace, even in that inactivity, you're going to have anxiety chattering in your head. You're going to have that victim mentality just spinning around in your head chattering, and you're going to be a ball of nervous energy. Whereas if, on the other hand, you're a warrior type of person and you're engaged in the struggle for becoming who you are, if you're lucky enough to have a moment of peace and quiet, you have fewer anxieties. You're less wary about what's going on around you. You're more confident in who you are because you have some tools to deal with reality should something come up. You're not constantly waiting for what the next problem might be. You're not constantly anxious about all the little worries that you've got because you understand that you are competent, that if those things do come up and damage you, that you're in the right mindset to deal with those sorts of things and have a toolkit that you can use to overcome the challenges of life. And you recognize that the challenges of life help you hone that toolkit and become a stronger person. I really like what he says next. When Zarathustra says that you say it is the good cause that hallows even war, I say to you, it is the good war that hallows every cause. I know that every struggle that I've faced in my life, even the worst ones, those wars that went on in my own head, those wars that went on between me and other people, the development that I gained from that, and the strength of character that I gained from those, even if they completely waylaid me for months or years at a time, at the end of the day, they've created a stronger person out of me. And it's that good war that hallows every cause. The learnings that I get out of that become so enshrined in me. They become so important to me and so central to who I am that the good war that long protracted battle of becoming a better person makes those learnings very special and they drive them deep into your soul. And I know a lot of you listening probably can empathize with this where if you've gone through something difficult in that time it's extremely difficult. I understand there's so much suffering involved but maybe a month later, maybe six months later, maybe a few years later, you look back on it and you look at all these things that you've unconsciously developed from that determination, willpower, maybe a particular skill set, and you recognize that the things that you got out of it, the cause of the war, the reasons for that war, the becoming a better person, the becoming a stronger person, they completely justify and are hallowed by that war that you fought. War and courage have accomplished more great things than love of one's neighbor. 
Not your pitying, but your bravery has so far saved the unfortunate. Last episode, when I gave the thought experiment about the town of a hundred people, a hundred households, and talked about the two scenarios where something tragic happens, one with minimal pity and one with complete pity, you can read Zarathustra here as taking the option of the first case that I gave you where the tragedy took place, it was bad, but the town and the people who faced the tragedy and the people who were helping out the person unto whom the tragedy fell with the mindset of the warrior of taking that challenge on, recognizing that it was a tragedy, but trying to push forward and move above it, that takes a lot of bravery. It takes a lot of courage, and it takes strength and battle and war. And those dispositions accomplish more things for yourself and the people around you and your community than simply pitying and feeling bad for people and giving them a place of comfort but not admonishing them to pick up the pieces and move on. That pity has this enervating, destructive aspect to it that can ruin lives and ruin communities. When he says that they call you heartless but your hearts are true, and I love the modesty of your hardiness. This is something that's very interesting. And when I describe the noble virtues, the noble man compared to the good man, back in the section on the tree in the mountainside, I described how often the noble man exercising his virtues of dedication, courage, dignity, honor, hard work over long periods of time often seems quite heartless. Even in the example above, the person who's not pitying often seems heartless. Maybe when you're growing up, your mother and father pushed you hard and tried not to pity you too much, and you thought it was quite heartless. But in all of those examples, you can see in the short term it might seem heartless. It might seem contrary to what the quote-unquote good man might do, who takes pity and cares about you and really cares about short-term suffering. But in the long run, you know that the, the people who are hard and require industry and require conscientiousness and require honor and strength and dignity, their hearts in the long run are truer and more disposed towards our strengthening and well-being than people who pity in the short term. If you have a kid and you're trying to discipline the child, you're trying to create someone who can be an independent functioning member of society. You don't give in every time the kid cries about something. You try and strengthen the child. You try and push past the weakness that all children and all human beings have and build them into something that's capable. And it takes a firm grasp on your heart. It takes a firm understanding that, yes, there is short-term suffering and I do feel bad about your suffering. But if I give into it too much, if I give into it, I'll only ruin you in the future. Zarathustra then goes on to say something that I found very puzzling for a long time. He says, you are ugly. Well then, my brothers, put the sublime around you, the mantle of the ugly. And when your souls become great, they become exuberant. And in your sublimity there is wickedness. I know you well. 
In wickedness is the meeting of the exuberant man with the weakling, but they misunderstand each other. I know you well. The way I read this is to suggest that some people who are engaged in this journey of becoming who they are, of becoming better versions of themselves, there's often an insecurity that we're not good enough, that we're ugly. And often in our present state, we are. Nietzsche here admonishes us in that case to cloak ourselves with the sublime, to wrap ourselves up, to dress ourselves with sublimity, with fine words, with lofty words and lofty ideals. And he says, when your souls become great, as you develop and as your soul deepens and becomes wider and more all-encompassing, you become exuberant, you become more joyful. This process of becoming ourselves, even though it deals with suffering, in the long term you become very joyful for who you are because you're becoming a more capable version of yourself. It's a very fulfilling and meaningful process. He says your souls become great, they become exuberant, and in your sublimity there is wickedness. And that's the part that always confused me. In your sublimity, there is wickedness. The way that I interpret it is to say that if you are ugly, if you don't like who you are, and you wrap yourselves up in lofty words and virtues, you're doing two things. One, you're idealizing the process that you're going through. By giving your process lofty words, you're, you're giving yourself an ideal vision to aim for, but you're doing it to cover up for your present state of weakness. And in doing so, if you present it to others that way, if you're outward about your wrapping yourself in sublimity, there's also an element of deceit. And the wickedness that exists in this sublimity is twofold. One, you're being wicked because you're deceiving to some extent perhaps yourself and others. But then there's also the wickedness involved in the cruelty we apply to ourselves in our devotion to becoming better. In wrapping ourselves with sublime and lofty ideals, we're holding up an idealized version of who we might become. And in order to become that person, we need to be extremely cruel and wicked to who we are now. He says, in wickedness is the meeting of the exuberant man with the weakling. And I really take this to mean that the weakling, someone who isn't developed, someone who doesn't have the tools to be effective at dealing with reality, at becoming a stronger version of themselves, someone who's fundamentally ugly, not only are we deceiving maybe ourselves and others? And not only are we applying cruelty to ourselves in setting up an idealized version of who we might be in contradistinction to who we are right now, and thereby giving ourselves an internal enemy that we have to take on. But to quote, one of Nietzsche's most famous phrases that came from Beyond Good and Evil. He who battles monsters, take care, 
lest he himself becomes a monster. And if you have an exuberant soul, but you still have an insecurity that you're not who you might be, you've cloaked yourself in sublimity, and you can't reach it, by taking on battles, by constantly challenging yourself, and taking on your inner demons and becoming a better person as you move from your current weak state to something that more or less approximates the ideal state. The sense of always being in a battle can create within your soul a hostile attitude because you're so used to dealing with the suffering of the world that you're bringing on yourself, all the enemies that you're constantly facing they turn you into something of a monster yourself. You can think, for example, perhaps this is a simple way of putting it, you can think, for example, of how you interact with people when you're having a very stressful day compared to how you interact with people when you're relaxed. If you're having a very stressful day and someone says, hey, how's it going? You're more likely to react in a snappy way with them. Your mindset of being engaged in some sort of battle makes everything look like some sort of monster that needs to be slayed. And there's wickedness in that. There's wickedness towards the flaws in you. There's wickedness towards others. And there's wickedness towards reality. And Zarathustra adds on to this in the next sentence. You may only have enemies that are to be hated, but not enemies to be despised. He's saying that as you're engaged in this process of becoming, yes, it's painful, yes, there's suffering involved, yes, you have tons of work to do to become a better person, and it will never stop. He says that the enemies, whether they're external, whether they're internal, whether they're actual people, whether they're a culture that seems to completely degenerate before your very eyes, don't despise it, only hate it. Despising something has sort of a gross, sinister, reptilian quality about it, whereas hating something seems a little bit more dignified. Hating something entails that you can still respect it, you approach it with a cooler head, you approach it more logically almost, whereas despising something has these moralistic, acidic overtones that can wither your soul away. You must be proud of your enemy. Then the successes of your enemy are also your successes. You should be proud of your enemy. You should be proud of the obstacles that you have to take on in life. Because the bigger the obstacle, the more fortified the obstacle that you need to take on the stronger you will become by overcoming it. Nietzsche goes on to talk about obeying. And I already discussed a bit of this at the beginning of this episode, where when he says to a good warrior, thou shalt, sounds more pleasing than I will. He's basically saying that while we're engaged in this journey, we aren't the type of people who are yet free we're still fighting for freedom. We're still trying to unify within our psyche all of the virtues that we have. We're trying to sort them out. We're trying to determine how all our virtues align with each other and really figure out who we are 
and what that means for our interactions with reality. And so, again, as I mentioned, this is very much a spirit of the camel, spirit of the lion chapter versus a spirit of the child. And again, he echoes the thought that may your love of life be love of your highest hope. And may your highest hope be the highest thought of life. He's saying keep that heroic mindset. Keep an idealized version of yourself. Keep your virtues and whatever you might become in developing towards those as your highest hope. And Zarathustra again gives us this command in the form of saying the human is something that is to be overcome. He's saying keep your eyes ascended. Keep developing in an upward way and keep that in line with your virtues, with who you are, and fight for it. And while you may not know how to do so, and at this point you don't know how to extend those beyond where they are, you're still in the process of becoming a superior human. And until you've mastered what it means to be a superior human, you can't go on and start inventing new things. You can't become the spirit of the child. He says a few interesting things about obedience. May your nobility be obedience. May your very commanding be in obeying. There's a notion, and he says it before. He says rebellion, that is the nobility in the slave. May your nobility be obedience. May your very commanding be in obeying. There's a lot of people in modern society who constantly rebel. They demand freedom, they demand rights, they demand the right to do whatever the heck they want. And Nietzsche doesn't look very highly on these people. He says that they're basically the slave. They're the bottom classes of society. They're typically the ones who are most aligned with socialistic thinking because socialists are basically resentful of anyone who's doing better than them. And instead of working on themselves, instead of obeying a rigorous set of practices of self-improvement to better their position in life. They'd rather tear the system down and make everyone above them equal to them. And he says that your nobility should be obedience, your very commanding should be in obeying. He's saying that all your actions in this process of becoming, in this process of developing yourself, have to obey very strict rules and it's similar in any area of life if you're learning math you have to follow strict rules to become good at math it's only someone who's very bitter and angry and negative who says no screw math we're not doing math we need to get rid of all these mathematicians who are doing better than me it's a very negative outlook Nietzsche very much as discussed many times now loves the noble approach to life of long protracted adherence to a set of rules even if they seem completely made up for the purpose of development. So live your lives of obedience and of war. What use is living long? What warrior wants to be spared? I do not spare you. I love you from the ground up, my brothers in war. Again, when Nietzsche ends this sentence, he says, obey higher principles. Obey the rules that you need to live by in order to improve your life. Go to the gym. Work hard. 
develop yourself, figure out what's wrong, fix the problems in your life, and have a warrior mindset. Don't be a defeatist loser like the preachers of death. Attack your problems. Hate your problems, but respect your problems and deal with them. He's saying, I love you from the ground up, my brothers in war, so I don't spare you. Because I love you, I'm trying to instill you with what it takes to be successful in life. And this is the approach we need to take to ourselves. This is the approach we need to take to our friends. This is the approach we need to take to our community. This is the approach we need to take to people at work. This is the approach we need to take with coworkers. And this is the approach that we need to take when we're raising children. Out of great love, for what people might become and might be capable of accomplishing and might be capable of making their lives into. We require strict obedience and a fighting spirit. So thank you, everyone. And thank you for listening. If you know anyone who might like this podcast, please feel free to share with them. If you want to get in contact with me, ask me a question, point out something that I haven't explained necessarily the best possible way, send me an email at alex at alexdrake.ca. Thanks, guys.